Welcome to the Pokes Podcast. I'm Jacob Longin. Lori Allen Walkie earned both a 2005 political science degree and a 2006 master's in healthcare administration at OSU, where she was a cowgirl basketball player and Miss OSU. She went on to earn a law degree and pass the Oklahoma bar exam, but changed her career path and completed a Master of Divinity degree. After becoming an ordained minister, she added a Doctor of Ministry. Today, she's the senior pastor at Mayflower Congregational Church in Oklahoma City. She joined me to talk about lessons she learned at OSU, what it's like being married to a politician, and how the couple advocates for what they believe in. She also tells a story of how the final seconds of her basketball career became one of the best feel-good moments in the history of Gallagher-Ivo Arena. Let's talk about your experiences at OSU. It was your basketball skills that brought you to OSU. Was that specifically why you chose OSU? I was delighted to be offered athletic scholarship by the Cowgirls. And of course, I had some other options, but... Stillwater was close enough for my parents, my family, and my friends to come watch me play, but also like a little too far to be like just dropping in, (laughs) which I think is maybe a, a concern for most college students as far as that goes. But once you visit the campus, you just fall in love with the place. And that was certainly, certainly true for me. And you, of course, you did battle injuries. Am I remembering this correctly, that you had three ACL tears, including high school? Right. I tore my ACL on my right knee for the first time my senior year of high school. And then times two and three, my junior and senior years at Oklahoma State. So three ACL tears on the same leg. They put you in what they lovingly refer to as the freak file in the (laughs) athletic training (laughs) department. Because it's just something that doesn't happen very often. But I received incredible care and rehab with the fine folks in the the athletic training department. They're really remarkable people there. And it changed the experience for me athletically, but it was no less special because of that. You were not expecting to become a professional basketball player, right? That's right. (laughs) But your career ended, your career as a basketball player ended earlier and differently than you expected. That has to be hard for two years to be taken away from you right at the end. It was a pretty challenging time, particularly hard challenge for, you know, a young person who's 21 and whose doctor says, if you tear your ACL again, we probably won't fix it because it's just too hard on the bones and the surrounding supporting structures. So you need to be really careful and you probably shouldn't ever play basketball or go snow skiing or any of these other activities if you want to be able to play on the floor with your kids in 10, 15 years. And you should probably expect lifelong trouble with it. But the thing about the way I was raised, my mother... (laughs) use the phrase well-rounded. I don't know how many times with us. <laughs> she wanted her children to be well-rounded. And so in high school, I actually, once a week, I would leave basketball practice early once a week to go to take a piano lesson. And my mother did not care that the punishment for missing practice or leaving practice early, no matter what the reason was extra down and backs. 
<laughs> and so I ran extra down and backs every single week because of piano lessons. But what that did for me ultimately was to create a mindset of, you know, we're not just one thing. We're never just one thing. We're not, we're never just a basketball player. We're never only an academic. We're not just the fun friend. You know, we have so many different facets to our personalities and our skill sets and how we engage with the world. So I know that that transition was easier for me. It also helped that both the Julie Goodenough coaching staff my junior year and then the Kurt Budkey coaching staff my senior year, they absolutely included and encouraged me, gave me specific roles during that time. It's important to, for folks to have purpose and they certainly gave me that in a time where it could have been like, well, I have no value, I don't have a role and they they gifted me that. And I think that's really special and something I always try to pay attention to when when someone has, when it seems like something has been taken away from them. Several things I feel like you just sort of hit on that I want to get into. You were a college athlete now about 15 years ago in a pretty high visibility sport. What is that experience like? What did you take from that? How did that benefit you as a person and help shape who you are? Oh, I think athletics can be such a good teacher of so many important life lessons. One is that you've got to work hard no matter what, whether you're the best on the court or you are a quote unquote utility player or you are the best practice squad going against first string. Everybody has a role to play. And I say a lot these days, all of us need all of us to make it. Mm. And I think I learned a lot about that as a student athlete. If your team is going to be successful from top to bottom, no matter what your role is, everybody has to be all in. If the practice squad doesn't go hard, that doesn't help the first string. It doesn't. I also think that teamwork is just something that you engage in your whole life, making sure that you're a good communicator, that people know what's going on, that there's a immediate goals, mid-range goals and long-term goals, you know, and that there's a difference between playing offense and defense. I mean, like, you know, I, I think you, people often think, oh, that's, these are cliche answers, but they're, they're true and they're yeah. real. And I, I think that, you know, kids who play sports, whether that's in middle school or high school or at the college level, they learn some lessons that are hard, hard to get elsewhere. And so you have the two injuries, the last one ended your career. But before that, the one your junior year, you took a medical redshirt, as I recall, you finished your political science degree. And then you started pursuing a master's at OSU. Last summer, I experienced sudden idiopathic hearing loss, which is a very wordy way of saying I lost complete hearing in one ear and they are not exactly sure why. Their best guess is that a, a virus attacked the nerve in the inner ear and our ear nerves just don't recover the same way that our the other nerves in our body often do. And I that happened in July of 2019 and I am just now in just a few days I'll I'll mark the one year anniversary of my cochlear implant surgery. And it's been successful. 
it has been successful. It is um, people, it is not, it's not the same as a hearing aid and it does not restore natural hearing. Basically, turn, it receives sound and the device basically translates that into electrical impulses that stimulate the nerve. But then your brain has to learn to interpret those electrical impulses as speech. So when they first activated the device, it sounded, everyone sounded, and myself included in that ear, sounded like an incoherent robot. It was like R2-D2 on steroids, <laughs> but with practice and time and um, a lot of practice and time, I can understand speech in that ear at, you know, almost 80%, which is really incredible given that it could be, I couldn't hear anything in that ear at all. Mm. And it does, it sounds like a robot and people think, oh my gosh, that must be bananas to hear a robot in one ear and normal speech in the other. But it is, our human beings are incredibly, you know, like we just adapt to things. Our brains learn to, to function in remarkable ways. And mm. this technology is incredible. It's obviously, I would prefer to have my normal hearing, but I'd also prefer to have my original ACL. Yeah. And that's just not part of the, <laughs> just not part of the deal. This is such a gift also to student athletes. I think not having to worry so much about finances mm -hmm. because of tuition being covered and books being covered and those kinds of things. But I was able to finish my undergraduate degree in three years. Mm -hmm. And then I pursued a master's in healthcare administration in what was technically my senior year. So by the time I left Stillwater after four years, I had a bachelor's and a master's degree. And I'm really grateful to the athletic department that prioritized tutors and the academic center and required study time. I remember I spent so much time my freshman year in the academic center in Gallagher-Iba uh, because it was required of us. I mean, they, it was a serious matter. Like you gotta, you gotta buckle down here. It's just like practice. You gotta mm. put in the, put in time with the books. So I want to talk about what you did next, but first, uh, as you know, one of my favorite stories from my time as a sports writer is what I believe is your final seconds as a player in Gallagher Arena. And I could try to tell that story, but I might mess up some of the details. So maybe you can talk about your, your sure. last seconds. So the setup to senior night is that, you know, I had torn my ACL in late, late preseason both years, my junior year and senior year. So I'd done what a lot of players consider like the hardest work of getting ready for the season mm -hmm. and then had to sit out and was ready to go again, you know, right when the tough stuff started happening postseason and summer prep and then preseason and then did it again my senior year. So recovering and rehab and all of those things. And we get to senior night. And at this point in the recovery, because ACL replacements take so long to recover, I was running and, and doing all those things. We're not doing any like cutting and, mm. and those kind of physical activities. And Coach Bud Key reached out to Gary Blair, who was at Texas A&M at the time, and had a talk with him about maybe possibly making this a special night for me to finally be able to put my jersey back on and lace up my shoes and get on the court for a couple of seconds. The plan was that they would foul me and I would get to go to the, the free throw line. 
And the part that not many people know is that Gary Blair had been at Arkansas, the University of Arkansas, my senior year and had recruited me to Arkansas. And I had turned him down for Oklahoma State. And then they visited us my freshman year, Arkansas came to Oklahoma State and they were ranked in the top 10. And we pulled off a stunner of an upset my freshman year. Uh, And so all of that to say is Gary Blair did not have to say yes to this. But he did because coaches like Gary Blair and Kurt Budke, they were the kind of coaches that knew that it wasn't just about the win-loss record. It's never just about what a kid can do on the floor for you, but it's about the experience. It's about family. College athletes, we, we sort of have our, you know what you know, and you've gone through some tough stuff together and that was the plan and and that it all worked out. I I got to go in with with just a few seconds left. They fouled me. I went to the free throw line. Those are the two most stressful free throws I have ever shot and will ever shoot. <laughs> but I made them both and you know the hug I got from coach Budkey when I came off the floor had absolutely nothing to do with making those two free throws and I feel very fortunate to have been coached and mentored by him and to some extent to coach Blair too. And let me throw in a few memories here. One, for our listeners, obviously, I covered Cowgirl basketball at the time. That's how I knew you. And you and I also had a class together at OSU, criminal behavioral analysis, I believe it was, which I always said is like a Jeopardy. It's like a Jeopardy category. That's amazing. I can't believe you just like summoned that. Well, criminal behavioral analysis for a thousand, Alex. I mean, come on. Seriously. But I remember talking to you in there and you were joking about, yeah, I I was thinking about intentionally missing the second free throw so they couldn't sub me out because it's a live ball at that point. Yeah. Um, But you did make it. And I remember, I I believe I remember Coach Blair in postgame talking about that moment and saying wonderful things about you. And I definitely remember years earlier when he was at Arkansas and your team upset his, I remember him coming into postgame and for the listeners, you have to understand the Cowgirl basketball program was really struggling at the time. Arkansas was a national power. It was a very big upset. And Coach Blair came in and said, don't write about Arkansas blew it. He said, you write about how OSU came in here and won this game. They earned that game. That's the story. And I have seen a lot of coaches in post games, coaches who won, coaches who lost. I've seen many upsets. That's one of the biggest I've ever seen. And I've seen very few, if any, handle losing with class as much as he did and winning with class as much as he did. And he went on to win a national title at Texas A&M a few years later. And that is about as much as I've ever rooted for a team other than OSU. When That's they got right. There, Me too. I, I was like, go fighting Gary Blairs. <laughs> I love him. Yep. As I said, I do want to talk about what you did next in your academic career. But first, you mentioned you played for Kurt Budke, although you barely got to play for Kurt Budke, right? I mean, that, that was it as far as yeah, actually it, playing. What's really, you know, that the people don't know, I, was, I wasn't even recruited by Julie Goodenough. I was recruited and signed under Dick Halterman. Mm-hmm. And so I, I had a sort of varied coaching experience, not that I was ever coached on the floor by Dick Halterman, but signed under him. And then um, Julie Goodenough got the job. And then, of course, my senior year, Coach Budke was hired. And that could have been an awful time for upperclassmen in Cowgirl basketball. He and his coaching staff could have written off the upperclassmen, said, you know, that's part of a different era and we just want to focus on, quote unquote, our kids. But Coach Budke treated me like his 
kid, his recruit, his player from day one. I will never forget that. And and that was that was true of his entire coaching staff. Coach Latell, oh my gosh. Oh, he has the greatest coaching phrases, which I will tell you, not all are fit for <laughs> public podcasts. But that man says some of the funniest stuff <laughs> while he is coaching. Um, and they're, I mean, Budkey and Latell, just very coaches that invest in their players, not because they they only care about their athletic ability and the win-loss record. And if anybody listening doesn't know this context, Coach Budkey and Miranda Serna uh, died in a plane crash on their way to recruit for Cowgirl Basketball Program on November 17th of 2011. So you had been gone for years, but um, right. obviously just a tragedy, an absolute tragedy. Yeah, just a devastating loss to so many people. Yeah, and just a, a reminder never to take anything for granted and, and tell the people that you love that you love them when you can. Yes. On a lighter note, I believe I remember that you became Miss OSU during your time here. And that surprised me at the time that that was something that you were interested in. How did that come about? Well, that is one of my favorite Coach Budkey stories, just to <laughs> what we were just talking about. But, well, to say that I was interested in it may not exactly be accurate. The, th- <laughs> the story behind that is that I have three sisters, two older sisters and a younger sister. As you might imagine, my oldest sister is the boss, and we do what she says, you know, at that point, I knew that I was considering going to law school. That was going to be the first time I was going to have to fund my own educational pursuits. And law school is wildly expensive. My oldest sister being the scholarship investigative reporter uh, (laughs) type, she discovers that if you win the Miss OSU pageant, or even if you, you know, place, you get some money for that. And you don't have to necessarily spend it at Oklahoma State. That scholarship money is just scholarship money. So she actually filled out the paperwork and turned it in and then told me that I had been entered into the Miss (laughs) OSU pageant. (laughs) And (laughs) that, that was a world completely foreign to me. It is its own world. I did not know that if you win a local pageant in the Miss America system, I didn't even know the Miss Oklahoma State pageant was in the Miss America system. I didn't know that there were different, that there's, you know, Miss USA and Miss America, and those are different things. So it turns out if you win a local pageant like Miss Oklahoma State, you are automatically entered into the Miss Oklahoma pageant. But to back up, entering the Miss Oklahoma, uh, Miss Oklahoma State pageant required that I would miss some practices. This was during a time when I had, in fact, torn my ACL, but because my rehab had been so good and the strength and conditioning had been so good, it was difficult for us to be sure that that had happened. My quads and my hamstrings were overcompensating wildly. We had to go several different places for MRIs and have multiple exams for that. And it was during the time of we're not really sure. We just know this hurts pretty badly when I do certain things. So I go to Coach Budkey and I say, I would like to enter this pageant and I'm going to have to miss practice, but I want to do this in the hopes that I can get some scholarship money to go to law school. 
and he laughed out loud. <laughs> I am a hundred percent sure I was his first player to make that request. And he said, go for it, girl, let's do it. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was a, it was a joke, uh, the whole rest of this. And of course, like at that, I had no, I had no thought that I was actually going to win this thing. Cause well, it's a different, it's just a different skill set. Yeah. Yeah. Got there. But they, the coaching staff showed up to the pageants and my teammates showed up and I had the best cheering section and they celebrated that win as if it were like part of the season. <laughs> uh, it was just a really lovely time. Forgive my ignorance here, but is there a talent portion? There is. I played the piano. I had ah. taken lessons all through first grade through my senior year in high school. And then I actually took piano lessons my freshman year of college. The instructor actually did not know our world. The worlds were so separate. She did not know that there was an athletic department. I don't know if this is still true, but they are required to take a certain number of non-music major students. Mm. And so I was one of those. I mean, I would refer to myself as a charity case there, but... <laughs> Uh, you you tell any players how you put it earlier. That's right. I mean, like you just you have a, a broad range of skills. You may not be the best at any of them, but you can be depended on, and that sort of defines my experience. So you win Miss OSU. I have to ask what it was like being in the Miss Oklahoma pageant. That was, I think, comparatively, it's like moving from high school basketball to college basketball, that is like an upper division, <laughs> upper level. <laughs> I won Miss Congeniality. And I think that that's, I can stop the story there. I won Miss Congeniality. <laughs> I, I mean, I will say the experience was really great. You know, it was, and I, I still have friends from the Miss Oklahoma pageant and it, it gave me the confidence to actually in law school uh, when I started law school, I was still eligible to enter the Miss Oklahoma City University pageant. I know that people have a lot of feelings about scholarship pageants, mm. but the reality is that I won enough scholarship to pay for an entire year of law school. And for reference at the time was $60,000. Wow. And I didn't win first place in that pageant. It was a remarkable opportunity. And I'm really grateful because I would definitely still be paying that off. So as you just mentioned, you went to law school, you got your law degree and so passed the bar. Is that right? I, yes, I took the bar exam and passed the bar exam. I have a very shiny bar card um, and can practice anytime I want, but by the time I got into my third year of law school, I'd had a, several experiences that had changed the course of where I was headed and felt a call to ministry, which was affirmed by the church and denomination I had joined after I moved from Stillwater back to Oklahoma City. I knew that I wanted to take that bar exam after such a rigorous commitment to get a legal education and took the bar exam in July of 09 and started seminary in August of 09, found out I passed the bar in September the next month. And I have not practiced since getting my bar card. I tell people I use my legal education every day. I connect that to the arts and sciences education I got at Oklahoma State. 
So you get your undergrad, you get your master's at OSU, then you go to law school, then you go to seminary. You were successful there. And how long is that? How long is seminary? A master's of divinity program is typically three years. It's a 90 credit hour program. So it's it's pretty rigorous. It seems not as intense as law school. <laughs> I mean, like just comparatively, it's yeah. uh, challenging in different ways and hard in different ways and stretches you in, in different ways. The problem with law school <laughs> is that you get to the end and you get your degree, but that doesn't mean you can practice. Mm, right. You have to take that very, very public bar exam where the results are posted publicly for everyone to see, which is incredibly stressful. <laughs> I will say it, perhaps, you know, my experience as a student athlete, all of your results are public posted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're a little bit more used to public scrutiny, your success and failure being made public. But anyway, but my master's of divinity at Phillips Theological Seminary in Tulsa, also a great experience. And then this year, uh, because learning never stops, mm. I earned my doctor of ministry from Emory University, the only educational experience I've had outside of Oklahoma. I mean, I've almost been to every university <laughs> in Oklahoma. I thought maybe I should <laughs> do something different just for funsies. Right. Uh, but finished that in May of this past year. Someone asked me what the next degree would be, and I told them I'd just really like to take some landscaping courses huh. at the Votech. Uh, <laughs> I actually am serious about that. So <laughs> <laughs> I saw that you got your doctorate and I laughed because I knew you as the person who got your master's degree while you were on athletic scholarship here. And I knew you went to law school. And then I found out later you'd gone to seminary and I was like, yep, that's Lori. Just always, always learning, which is great. You know, my parents, I don't know that they actually had this in mind for me, <laughs> but there were two things that were very certain growing up, that we would go to church every time the doors were open and that my sisters and I would go to college. My mom went back to school after my youngest sister was born, you know, when she was 28, 29 to get her teaching degree. You know, when I think about that, I think, oh my gosh, you were raising four kids in the 80s with the oil bust and my dad and lots of my family were in the, the oil field. And my dad, he had started at a community college on a basketball scholarship and uh, didn't finish that, went and joined the workforce immediately. But my earliest memories of him are of him reading to us. Education was always so important to my parents that we be serious about our studies. And, you know, obviously I've taken that to the extreme. <laughs> but they are delighted. I mean, I mean, I'll tell you that one of my one of the things that is most special to me is that when my like I got my acceptance letter to Oklahoma City University School of Law, my dad just said, "I can't, I can't believe I've got a kid in law school," mm. and I, I will treasure that my whole life. That's awesome. And so, so after you finish seminary, what next? So after I finished seminary, I was ordained in the United Church of Christ denomination and started ministry at Mayflower Congregational United Church of Christ, where I am now the senior minister. At the time, I, I was hired full-time as a, a what we lovingly referred to as the junior associate minister and was in that role for two years. And then the, the other associate minister left. So I like to say I was the senior 
associate minister to no junior associate minister. <laughs> that's not that's not the point. Um, <laughs> and uh, and and was in that role uh, and from 2000 the the beginning of 2014 until last month when I was called to be the senior minister at Mayflower. And I know from knowing you and from social media and some other things, you are a a woman who is very visible in what you're doing, not just within the church, but outside of the church. And I want to talk about that. But first, I want to talk about being a woman who is a minister is still the exception and not the norm. What is that like? Do you, you must face some challenges that a man who was had the same credentials as you probably would not face. Women in ministry is still catches people by surprise. I very often hear, oh, I've never met a female minister before, a, a, a girl pastor before. I intentionally wear my clergy collar if I am going anywhere in a, an official capacity, like to you know the hospital to make an ICU visit or to the state capitol if I'm you know, I've, as in my role as chaplain of the week or if I am doing advocacy at a school board meeting or, or those kinds of things. And sometimes that means that I run errands in my clergy collar. And one time I was in Target in the checkout line and there was a dad and a little girl in front of me. And she just kept staring at me. Like she recognized the symbol of the office of the role of mm-hmm. clergy with the collar. And she finally worked up the nerve to say, are you a pastorina? <laughs> And I said, yes, I am. And have used that loving phrase a lot since then. But clergy women are everywhere. We are growing in number. In my denomination, we just women, there are now officially more ordained clergy women than there are men. Wow. There are, of course, what we call stained glass ceilings in the church. While we technically outnumber ordained men, we are less likely to be senior ministers at you know what people call big steeple churches. We're more likely to to have multi-point charges and be associate ministers, those kinds of things. What um, is a multi-point charge? I don't know that term. Uh, multi, um, where you are a minister at several churches. This okay. occurs a lot in rural Oklahoma, where perhaps one congregation can't support a full-time minister, but Mm -hmm. they can contribute with a couple of other congregations. So yeah, I I wish that the the church was a better example to, uh, and a better witness for gender equality, Um, but we're getting there. Mm. We're working on it. Which leads into um, something else that I think a lot of people, at least in Oklahoma, might know your name for. You are always out there wishing for a better example, pushing for the state for whatever to be better. It seems like every time I turn around, you're out there fighting for something else, which regardless of what anyone thinks about any of those issues, that has to be maybe draining is the best way to put it. I, I, I don't know. Do you ever feel like, boy, this is just hard? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly fatigue that happens, and I think everybody experiences that. And anytime you live in a place that isn't living up to its best self, there's a weariness to that. But social justice work or community organizing, I, I approach it as I was singing in, in part of a choir. And anytime that I get tired, 
and I need to stop or take a break, rest, I can do that because the voices around me are still singing. And then when I recover, that's when I start singing again so that whoever is tired now, they can step back for a second. And I, I really cling to that image when there, it just seems like we are not making any progress and that, that even sometimes it's a step backwards or two, but many hands make light work. And I think that there are a lot of people trying to make sure that Oklahoma is the place we know it to be. Well, and I think everybody would agree that there are ways that our city, state, nation, world could be better. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, somebody fighting for improvement is a good thing. The question really ultimately just becomes how hard are you willing to fight and what are the improvements? Right. And, and I think so many times that people think that we're you know, divided, but I, I just reject that narrative. We have so much in common. Yes, we have some different ideas about how we get there, but everybody wants Oklahoma kids to be healthy and fed and receive a good quality education. Yeah. Um, we want those same things. Now we do need to figure out the common ground that will get us there. Mm-hmm. All of us are going to have to do um, a little compromising. And, and I actually, this, I, I was told this while I was a student athlete by Wes Watkins mm-hmm. that I remember to this day and say often, he said, there is a difference between the principle of compromise and the compromise of principle. Mm. And I, I think that that is more important now than ever. So because of your work for social justice, you were featured in a documentary that came out (laughs) within the last year. Is that right? Yes. uh, The documentary was called American Heretics, The Politics of the Gospel. And that documentary sort of follows my congregation, Mayflower Congregational UCC, and um, a congregation in Tulsa. And it follows, it does some, some background work, uh, background look on the, the ministers of both congregations and um, what the congregations are doing specifically to address immigration justice and which is connected to racism. And that, the other church that they feature is All Souls Unitarian in Tulsa. And they are a, a multiracial congregation that has done incredible work on race relations and the Tulsa race massacre. Uh, mm-hmm. And responding to that, uh, it's it's really, they, theirs is an incredible story. We've kind of been getting right at this question, but we haven't really hit on it. You are married to a politician, <laughs> um, Colin Walkie. That's right. And he's also an OSU grad, I believe. He is. We even had a class together. He is a year ahead of me. We had American Indian history. His... I mean, what was technically, I mean, my third year to finish my undergrad, and it was his uh, senior year of his undergrad. And we met in that class. We then really met for, you know, all in practical purposes at law school. Mm. He was a, a 2L, a second year student when I showed up as a 1L. And so that's how we reconnected after Oklahoma State. We did not tell each other when we got married, that we would eventually wind up being a preacher and a politician. Uh, which, which, how, which you phrase as? The rep and the rev. Yes, I love that. 
Yes. And so we like to say that we do as much, make as much trouble in the name of Jesus and justice as we can. <laughs> Jesus and justice. I like it. It's been a, but I mean, both of those journeys have been a wild ride for both of us. He is a state representative for House District 87, which is in central Oklahoma City. The boundaries are all kinds of gerrymandered. And he's held that seat since 2016 and was most recently reelected in the November 2020 election. And we've been talking several times about having you having positions that are very public. It seems like everything you do, you're in the public eye. And again, he's running for office and he's in office and you're still in the public eye. Boy, that's a lot. It, it is a lot. And I would say that my mother would quote scripture and say, to whom much is given, much is required. Mm. I just feel very fortunate that I was... I happened to be raised by two parents who poured themselves into me. And then it just seems like every step along the way that my experiences at Oklahoma State and other people pouring themselves into me and encouraging me and being cheerleaders and um, challenging my ideas and thoughts and self-imposed limitations have put me in this position that I am where I can raise important issues and encourage dialogue and, and try to find solutions for the common good. Or at least that's, that's what I hope that I'm doing. <laughs> that's, the, that's, the, that's the goal. Because you are so publicly, you personally are so publicly fighting for certain things, and your husband in his job is publicly fighting for things, have you had any issues that you didn't agree on or have you talked about how you would handle it if you did? If you wanted to go lobby for something and he said, I just can't support you in that, what happens then? Sure. Um, those are conversations. We haven't had anything that, you know, like has just been a really hard yes for one of us and no for the other. Mm. I think that the, our rule is that we encourage each other to be our very best. Mm. And that doesn't mean that we agree on everything. Sure. He gives me a hard time all the time. I He wants education to be free for everyone. Uh, college should be free for everyone. And, ev you know, like that should just be the rule. And I'm like, well, I think everyone needs to have some kind of personal investment in it. Mm. And, you know, like, I'm like, $10, like you got to contribute $10 to your education. And he's like, no, that's not, you know, that, that's not even a thing. And I'm like, well, I think it is. And um, that we have robust debate in mm. our house, religion and politics. It is the discussion at the dinner table. Uh, and it's not for a lot of families. So yeah, so that's what I would say. Um, it's just a conversation. And at the end of the day, I would never want, you know, again, both of us, we just want the the other to be the, the best version of ourselves that, that we can possibly be. And so that's, it's an easy role of support. So you've been interviewed quite a bit, starting with your days as a college athlete and continuing through today. I remember my very first post-game interview with Casey Kendrick. Yes. Uh, because he starts out and I say something, something, I say, yes, sir, something like that. And Casey laughed and said, 
you can relax a little. Yeah. You don't call me sir. <laughs> and I mean, I, at the time, I didn't know Casey well. And of course, you get to know Casey and Kevin very well. Yeah. By the time you're finished with cowgirl basketball. Uh, but I, I, I will never forget that. Because I, I mean, I can remember I was shaking. I was so nervous. I'm not, you know, you've never been on the radio before. So I remember that's a significant memory in my mind. One of the skills that, you know, you don't think about or necessarily associate with sports is interacting with the media and giving interviews, being mostly coherent <laughs> and asking and answering questions thoroughly but succinctly and telling a story and inviting people to participate with you. And I, I really do attribute my relative comfort engaging with the media now with my time at Oklahoma State and our interactions with media and reporters and, and, and all of that. You had asked, you're asking me about, um, you know, being in the public eye as an individual, but also as part of a, a couple of very, that have very public roles um, as a representative and, and as, as a, a minister, as a reverend. And I think one of the ways that I have coped with that or handled the scrutiny, the criticism that comes with that is connected to being a student athlete. Mm. And you're just open to public criticism, both in the moment when fans are screaming at you in a game mm. and also post game when everybody's dissecting what you did or didn't do and why you, why you did or didn't do something. This is in part why it is very hard for me to watch college sports of any kind with other people who have not played college sports or been around college athletes because it's the criticism is just hard for me to take. I mean, these are 18 to 22 year old kids, guys, chill, <laughs> you know, but I also think that that sort of helped condition me one to not take things too personally, but also to be open to critique. I think you know, that's another gift of being part of a team and being coached is that you learn how to do something new or do it differently and it's more impactful and that's transferable to life in general. And well, and you're talking about the things publicly. Also, I was not there when you all were say looking at film, but you're watching film of your performance and your coaches are seeing exactly what you did. Right. And going, this was great. What were you thinking here? We've all been mentored by various people, but I have never had anybody sit down with me and literally go frame by frame of something I did and go, why on earth did you make this mistake? I bet that yeah. toughens your shell a little bit too. Yeah, it does. One, because you have to respond. And sometimes the only response is, I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I've just messed up here. And I'm going to try not to do that again, which is a really important thing to be able to say at any, any moment in life. I also will say, I mean, this is not something that I think a lot of people think about or a lot of preachers these days, your sermons are 
recorded mm. either audio or audio and video. And in seminary, they do already in those preaching, those early intro to preaching classes, they, they ask you to record yourself and then they go over the tape oh, just wow. like, just like in sports in part so that you can be a more effective communicator, all of those kinds of things. But uh, that was something that a lot of my classmates were pretty horrified by, but I was like, oh, this seems normal. This, right. this is reasonable. It's right. fine. You're like, well, I didn't. Welcome friends. welcome, friends, to this really sort of excruciating experience. You're like, I didn't miss a single free throw in that sermon, so I'm fine. I nailed it. Exactly. <laughs> One thing I definitely do want to ask you about you mentioned COVID 19. This is a hard time for everybody, but I know it's a hard time for churches. It's a hard time for someone like you who is literally ministering to people and you cannot be in physical proximity with people right now. That has to be a struggle. That has been one of the most difficult pieces. So much of our, the comfort we offer people is just a simple, you know, hand on the forearm or an arm around the shoulder, handing somebody a Kleenex. Even that is sometimes not possible in times of grief and loss. And there just has been so much grief and loss on top of you know the grief and loss we usually think of as connected to death. Mm-hmm. But we as a community have lost so many things, have not been able to mark special moments or significant moments in the ways that we have traditionally done so. And while I think it's important that we celebrate and encourage adapting and transforming and changing how the way we do things, there's also, it's so important to grieve those things that we've lost and just acknowledge that this is really hard. If we can all just extend a little more grace and kindness, not just to ourselves, but to each other, this really can be easier than it is. So you've been talking a lot about life lessons and things you've learned that have helped you succeed, but I haven't asked you directly, what did you learn at OSU that has helped you succeed? One of the most important things that I learned in my time in Stillwater was the importance of community. I just felt completely embraced by Stillwater as a whole, and not just me individually, but I just felt like I saw example after example of the community showing up for itself, showing up for one another. All of us need all of us to make it. And so if you know, we we just have to embrace the good, the bad, the ugly, the talented, the brilliant, and move forward together. And I felt like in many ways, I saw that time and time again in Stillwater. That's beautiful. I'd like to thank Lori for joining me. If you'd like to contact us with any questions or suggestions, including topics for future episodes, please email pokespodcasts at okstate.edu. Remember, there's no T in Pokes Podcasts. And with that, we'll end as we always do with our signature question. How do the arts and sciences make the world a better place? The arts and sciences don't teach you what to think. They teach you how to think. And so it empowers and enables people to get outside of themselves, enables them to take a step back, 
It's a sort of a generous approach to topics. You're hearing stories from all different people, from all walks of life, from all different places. And so you are challenged to see things from different angles. As you start doing that, it becomes second nature. And I think that is how we get to a place of common ground and working for the common good because we don't have a death grip on our point of view and our perspective. Our, our hands have sort of been opened to thinking about things in a generous way, playing lightly with ideas to borrow a phrase. 